I went to high school on the outskirts of town. A decent number of my peers were from some of the area's more rural neighborhoods, so it wasn't the most diverse student population. I remember going to a school dance my sophomore or junior year. There was a young gay man attending with his date, which may have gone largely unnoticed if not for the fact that they were both dressed in full formal drag. A situation quickly developed in the foyer outside the school gymnasium. A group of teenagers, wearing boots, wranglers, tucked-in flannel shirts, and cowboy hats, began threatening the couple as they arrived. The scene seemed tense and dangerous, but it was kept from escalating by a lone student standing between the two groups. He was another teenage cowboy, dressed like all the others, but facing them, breaking their lines of protest. With arms spread in defense, he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe against his friends, aggressively pushing back the wave of anger. And he was doing it to protect his brother. Scramble Transmissions is a podcast about anthology television and a human condition. These series vary in release dates and ratings, so the episodes discussed may contain nudity, sexual content, graphic violence, and outdated cultural references. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. kid in the early to mid-90s, you were likely familiar with an icon so big and bright it was hard to ignore. It meant the weekend was in full swing, and it was time to party. At least as much partying as one could do at 10 years old. It was the big orange couch, and it signaled one of the greatest blocks of programming a preteen at the time could imagine, SNCC, or Saturday Night Nickelodeon. If Friday was the night you sat around with your family and watched sitcoms on ABC's TGIF, then Saturday was the night you got the TV to yourself and felt like a young rebel with a reverent Snick series like Clarissa Explains It All, Roundhouse, All That, and Ren and Stimpy. But there was one series always saved for the last time slot. While the other shows of the night elicited laughter and feelings of joy, the last 30 minutes of Snick tore that all away by asking the question, Are you afraid of the dark? Are You Afraid of the Dark was created by DJ McHale and Ned Candle and premiered with SNCC on August 15, 1992, though a pilot episode aired a year earlier as part of a Halloween special. Differing from the other series in the programming block, which took humorous formats like sitcom and sketch comedy, Are You Afraid of the Dark was an anthology horror series designed for younger audiences, and speaking from experience, it worked. The show centered around a group of teenagers who would meet in secret around a campfire to tell each other scary stories. They called themselves the Midnight Society, and each week one member would submit their story for the group's approval, a reoccurring line which nodded to the original Twilight Zone, and the story would play out as the episode. Today we're unscrambling the series premiere titled The Tale of the Phantom Cab. The episode was written by Chloe Brown, directed by Ron Oliver, and stars Jason Tremblay, Sean Vertigo, Brian Dooley, and Aaron Tager. The tale is about two bickering brothers who are lost in the woods. They're guided to a mysterious hut and introduced to an eccentric doctor who offers them guidance out of the woods, if they can answer a riddle. 
Will the brothers come together to solve their common problem, or will their fighting cause them to lose their heads? Joining me today is John Charles. I thought he might be interested in discussing the series, as he was too young to see it during the initial SNCC run. Admittedly, at 20 years old, he's not exactly the target audience for this show, but I did want to get his opinion and see how the show holds up today. I'm Adam Timish, and this is Scrambled Transmissions. You had mentioned you had seen this series before, correct? Yeah, yeah. Bits and pieces. Um, every now and then, you know, come home from school and, you know, old reruns be on. Cool. Now, was it a show you were, like, really, I guess you weren't a huge fan of it or anything. You just kind of caught it whenever it was on. Yeah, yeah. Back then, uh, my taste in shows was just pretty much whatever was on the guide at the time. Yeah, I was kind of the same way. I used to watch it pretty regularly when I was younger, but also when it originally ran was when I I was younger. I don't think it was probably on its uh, main run at the time that you were a child, because you're quite a bit younger than me, obviously. But uh, so I was really into the show, but I remembered it being a lot better <laughs> than maybe what it is now. It's uh, it's obviously kind of a, a lower budget show meant for younger audiences. So, you know, it obviously doesn't have a lot of the uh, maybe cinematic value that a lot of modern television does. But um, what were some of your initial thoughts on, on the episode? The intro with the whole uh, secret society, you know, come tell your story. I, it, it just brought me back to, like, being a kid, a little neighborhood kids. We'll find some spot in the woods that's just, like, our spot and just gather there. And to take it to that level of, like, oh, this is a secret initiation about, like, spooky stories. You know, it's just instantly like, ooh, okay, like, I got to hear what these kids know. Like, what what are they about to talk about? I, I really like that aspect of it, that there's a, a framework to the series where it is a, a group of younger teenagers that are telling each other scary stories. Um, and in this first episode, there actually is a new initiate named uh, Frank that has to uh, kind of win his way into this secret society uh, in order to, to be able to join the club. And so he does that by presenting this this initial initial tale so but yeah I, I really like that that aspect of it did you and your friends ever ever used to i mean i'm sure you guys told some ghost stories on occasion oh yeah but by, by this point it would have been talking about our our latest clips in call of duty or whatever you know. but you <laughs> yeah. know the the essence is still there you know uh, so yeah, from from there, of course, they get into the tale, and and what it is is these two brothers kind of going into the woods. Uh, they get lost hiking. Their names are Denny and Buzz. <laughs> One is a, a cool guy, which is always depicted by his use of a cut off denim <laughs> vest and a backwards cap. You know, you know, you're dealing with a real cool guy when oh, yeah. when you've got a tire like that. Uh, and then Buzz is yeah, his younger brother who's a little bit nerdy and likes to fall off cliffs. <laughs> I, I almost related instantly because when my family first uh, moved to where we are, we had these woods in our backyard and me and my brother like actually literally got lost in these woods once. It's funny because I, although he was definitely not the tough denim jacket wearing kind, uh, <laughs> the the same dynamic instantly like 
you're walking like the the compass is facing your belt right right it it really touches down on like yo like i can actually like believe this i can see this maybe not so much not seeing a cliff right in front of me when i fall but i could definitely (laughs) see myself in the situation yeah it it was a very funny scene because he spilled some water on a map i guess and the denny is yelling at him about that and as as Buzz walks off, then he just says, "Watch out for the edge" or something like that, and uh, Buzz just goes straight off <laughs> off this cliff and barely barely hangs on. Yeah, the the little like gripping moment where they like grab hands, <laughs> it's just like it lets you know early on, like no matter what happens, they're still brothers, and we want right. you to know that. I, I think I think Diddy even says he says, "Give me your hand," and Buzz is kind of scared to do it, and he he yells him. Adam and he's like give me your hand you jerk <laughs> and I think it's a great depiction of brotherhood because you've got the brother that is trying to save him but also has to be a little bit of a dick in there too you know <laughs> so of course from there they uh they meet the okay so they meet uh Flynn who is we don't know yet but he's a, a cab driver who's also walking in the woods and he's very odd he explains that he's just a traveler just like them which is a weird thing to say in my opinion, right? Like, if you're introducing yourself to someone, would you ever say, I'm a traveler just like you, <laughs> if you're oh, just yeah, hiking no. in the woods? No, yeah, that's bad vibes altogether. Very, very uh, ominous sounding. But he tells them that if they go to a cabin where this doctor lives, the doctor can help them get their, their way out of the woods. So uh, at this point, they go in and they meet Dr. Vink. Well, first off, the this is kind of off topic, but... uh that that moment struck me in the show as kind of peculiar because you know the time that it came out you know afternoon specials were like the the thing you know you always got to learn a lesson in your tv show you're watching right and it was funny that these kids were just so trusting of these strangers in the woods yeah but that that's beyond the point but um. no no i i think it's an excellent <laughs> point because yeah you and i think they are a little standoffish but Denny seems to think that he can take he can the, handle him. the guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I can handle this guy. So we'll just follow him wherever he wants us to go. But uh, Dr. Vink with the riddles, I, I'm i I'm not sure where they were going with that, with with the whole writing, like natural science, mad chemist riddle guy. <laughs> right, right. I, I was having trouble keeping up, to be honest. But uh, the the character was still displayed very well, I feel like very uncomfortable like i feel like if i was there i would be wanting to leave as soon as possible i would run into the woods in the middle of the night no idea where i'm going to get out of that as soon as possible yeah especially with a riddle like that when i was watching it i literally couldn't even figure out what the riddle was so i knew i would be done for it yeah and i I will get to the the riddle but yeah i i agree there was a weird thing where you know again kind of going back to the the title being the tale of the Phantom Cab. And the actual Phantom Cab is about two minutes of this entire half hour yeah. episode. And it does feel very disjointed because, it, to me, the the episode really centers around Dr. Vink and the riddles. Not really around the Phantom Cab. It was almost like there were two episodes here that they just kind of merged into one, <laughs> into one episode. And I, I don't feel like it really flowed, especially when we start thinking about a cab in the middle of the woods. But... <laughs> All that aside, you know, yeah, so so Dr. Vink's whole premise is, or his whole setup, is that I'll help you out of the woods, but you have to solve a, a riddle. And the riddle is, what is lighter than air? What can you see with the naked eye? And if you put it in a barrel, 
it would make it lighter. So I was going to ask you that. Would you, did you know the answer to that or would you know the answer to that? I was sitting there like, yo, it's a flame. It's fire. Yeah. Like <laughs> put fire in a barrel, it'll burn and make it lighter. Like, you know, and yeah, I would have been taking that, that taxi real soon. <laughs> the, the thing is though, is fire wrong? Is, is that a no, wrong answer? Yeah, I, no, I think that yeah. works. I stand by it. So this is a question I've always had about riddles is if you tell someone a riddle, they'll come up with a response that works, even if it's not the response that was intended. So in this situation, if you're some sort of demon natural science doctor in the woods uh, that's trying to trick kids into this, do you accept wrong responses? I I don't know. Uh, By principle, I mean, I would assume not. (laughs) Right, right. Because you're trying your hardest to get those kids to go to your well i don't know where they're going they're just getting killed i suppose but he needs he needs specimens is what they keep saying is he needs and he's got a hand in a jar no yeah so obviously he takes these riddles very seriously so you need to come correct there is no (laughs) semi-answer you know what would be dope though is if you had said fire and then at the time lit the cabin on fire i think that would have been a real a real base move to to uh just add a little bit of a, a better climax to the uh the series at I least it would have made the boys more modern humor i don't think the kids back then would have would have picked up on that no no uh buzz was not not the uh i'm gonna i'm gonna light a place on fire type of uh type of kid not that badass not switchblade in his pants denims But uh, so yeah, Doctor Vink is disappointed. They don't know the answer to the riddle right off. He tells them that they can leave, take a left, go down to the end of the road, and there's a, a cab waiting for them. To I don't even know if he says take them home. He just says cab waiting for them. Which they they still try to argue with him a little bit, and he says, "Okay, I'll I'll tell you the way out of here if you give me a specimen." And then he holds up the hand in the jar, like you're going to give me a hand to get out of here or whatever. So they run out. They like scream. It does the Jaws shot, you know, where it's like it's panning towards them yeah. while backing away at the same time. Uh, and then they run out of there and they they find the cab, which, again, is in the middle of the woods, which does not have any sort of paved roads or anything like that. And what we learn in the cab is that Dr. Vink gives people riddles and whenever they fail, the cab comes and picks them up and then crashes into a tree and kills everyone in, inside. The interesting thing about this is Flynn is the cab driver. He's returned from when he took them to the the cabin to begin with. But he tells them that he crashes his car every single night. (laughs) So here's my my question, JC, is at what point does this town start to get concerned that people are disappearing every single single night? Well, (laughs) that with every other question I asked watching this episode is... (laughs) It's a 13-year-old telling the story. Can I really get mad at him? <laughs> right, right. I guess that's I This guess is that's some true. it level, like, kids are missing and nobody is concerned. Obviously, you know, this this town's got something going on. Like, magical science dude living in a tree but also has a telephone. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, who are we to question what's going on? Right, you know? right. Yeah, it's, it's the uh, issue of suspension of disbelief. At some point, you just kind of have to say... I guess this is just the way this works in this in this uh, reality. 
and and to add on to the point of kids just blindly trusting things they just hopped in the cab without even checking it out like they didn't even look in the driver's seat like they just <laughs> right. hopped right in the back like honestly at that point they deserve whatever happens to right them. and it's one of those those cabs too that looks like it's about well he says it was 40 years ago so yeah it looks like it's you know four decades before you know their their actual time and it's all dingy and and dirty and everything. fresh prince of bel-airish and flynn who was in the forest before looking completely normal now he looks very ghoul like his He's completely pale and has bags under his eyes. I think you're right. There are some red flags that probably should have been been considered before hopping in that that cab. I must say, though, um, just to add one more point, that it was that scene when they actually were in the cab talking to him and uh, that little, like, turnaround, very cliche horror moment, but also, like, I think that was my favorite part of the entire episode was right there, like, I guess you could say I died, (laughs) and, like, because the kid's all shocked and everything all cheesy, like. Yeah, because what he does, I mean, he he basically spins his head completely around and is like an owl uh, to look towards the back of the seat and says, guess you could say I'm dead! And, yeah, they, they have another freak out again, and that's when they realize, okay, we're being driven to hell or wherever i don't i don't know where where they go once they crash but they definitely die but yeah so so then they start panicking and trying to solve the riddle last minute and right before they hit the tree they come up with the answer which is a hole a hole's lighter than air uh you can see it and it would make the the barrel lighter if you put it in there again i think that is subject to some uh some scrutiny but it works the cab disappears and they fall to the ground uh right in front of the tree so the day was saved. Any thoughts on that last minute save there? Uh, I mean, at that point, it was just expected. <laughs> right. Even right. when they blindly ran up to the ranger and uh, hopped right up in his Jeep, too. Yeah. I thought it was going to be episode two for a second. Like, it was just, you know, straight straight segue to the next. And then I remember <laughs> yeah. the series I was watching. So <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Like, what, what are these boys going to do next? <laughs> I don't I don't think he's Dr. Vink, but the actor that plays Dr. Vink, I think he is in other episodes of Are You the Afraid of the Dark? And I really like that because he is one of the most off-putting things on in this episode. Like <laughs> that doctor is so weird and so crazy looking, and I don't know that I've seen that actor in anything else other than a couple episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark? But I, I think it's probably the highlight of the uh the episode is that that crazy old man in in the living in the tree like he had like a pig brain <laughs> yeah. that was that was next level yeah that was really advanced so if you had seen this episode when you were 12 would it have scared you oh no <laughs> never like i mean i what's funny is i was more of a goosebumps kind of kid growing up right and even then like that that stuff never really got to me like it i just cannot like suspend my belief like that to ever just be like oh like this is spooky especially when it's for kids you know right they can't get that crazy with it there's always gonna have to if if there's ever a bad ending it's always only implied it's never like explicitly shown like you're not gonna see kids crashing into a a tree and dying you know It'll it'll just Especially be like on Nickelodeon, right, right? 
it may show them screaming and then cut away or something to imply that they they've run into the tree but yeah you're not going to get any of sort of the graphic stuff that that maybe lends itself to being scary because yeah I, I look at this and i i think i was kind of scared by are you afraid of the dark when i was really young i had a very sheltered childhood so those types of things probably lent themselves to scaring me a little bit more but one thing I do think is still very effective on this show is the opening title sequence where it's like the weird baby doll in the attic and the uh, the opening theme song, I think, is very, very effective. I, I think I do like yeah. that about this series a lot. I think it really sets the tone for something that then ultimately ends up not being that scary. But it probably doesn't help that I think my dad showed me uh what a child's play maybe, i was like maybe seven <laughs> yeah. when i first watched child's play and so like yeah if you see something legitimately scary uh it's you're not going to be able to turn around and watch are you afraid of the dark or goosebumps and and then be, be still be scared in the same way if you were part of the midnight society and you were testing a new initiate into uh your club of scary stories would this have passed your test? Uh, yeah, probably. Okay. Like, if, if, you know, you can only assume, like, the kids telling the story and they're visualizing it as we're seeing it in the show. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, like, for what it is, you know, I, I, I'd definitely give it a thumbs up. <laughs> okay. That's the other thing. So, it cut, after the story, it cuts back and they're, they're back around the campfire uh, and Frank has told his story. And... They all have to vote unanimously. This is a very tight system to get into this group because yeah. you tell your story. You're completely blindfolded the entire time because you can't know where you are until you've been accepted. And so once you tell your story, they vote on you thumbs up or thumbs down, and it has to be a unanimous vote. So that's that's a tough, tough group. Good for Frank. I, I'm, I, I think the story was good. I don't know if it was unanimously thumbs up <laughs> good at good night it was he caught him on a good night yeah i guess so <laughs> so there were like six six kids there or something five or six so yeah five out of five thumbs up is is pretty good also loved how uh it, even though you like you gotta assume it's a small town they live in where kids are all gathering in the woods in the middle of the night but they're trying to have the secret society, but then the dude like outed every single one of them before, like <laughs> yeah. while they were giving their thumbs yeah. up, like like yeah. Allison, thumbs yeah. up, Ethan, thumbs Betty up. Sue, whatever their names were. Yeah, he just named every so, single one of them. Imagine not getting in, and then you have to go to class the next day, knowing all these people who don't like your scary stories. But also, you know, you say they're in a small town, but I I think at the beginning he said something like. We all go to different schools. We all have different interests. So they kind of set it up like oh, I must they kind of set that. it up like we don't really know each other or even like each other. We just all show up here and tell scary stories to each other. Oh, I really missed that part. That's some real. They're on some real dark brotherhood stuff. Yeah, and it, it obviously makes you wonder, like, how in the world that group got organized to begin with. If none of them <laughs> this know is each like other. early internet, age, <laughs> right? Right? Exactly. <laughs> Like, two of them just bumped into each other in the woods, and they just were like, we should <laughs> I'm a start. traveler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brotherhood and Sisterhood. This level of connection can come with love and support, or occasional anger and frustration. 
But regardless if it's literal siblings or chosen family, these bonds can be hard to break and often come with more benefits than problems. I grew up with one sister, and my recollection of our relationship is that we always got along fairly well. Her description is that I was a giant bully. She's probably right. But with barely a year between us, there was enough friction that some headbutting was natural. At least that's how I justify it. A common tale of young couples, my parents tried for years to have children, and were eventually told they were unable. So they decided to adopt. Me. Then what must have been only a handful of months later, the impossible happened. My mom found out she was pregnant. My parents were never anything but honest about my adoption. They always wanted me to know about the circumstances of how I came to the family. But as I got older and my curiosity grew, I learned that information about my birth was actually very limited because it was a closed adoption. There were legal protections preventing me from ever finding out where I came from. However, the organization that facilitated the adoption did provide some information about my biological parents, including ages, brief medical history, general background, interests, and most helpfully, extracurricular activities in high school. They were both teenagers. When I was 27 years old, it suddenly occurred to me that I might be able to identify my parents extrajudicially, so I headed to the local library. I requested every local yearbook for the two years prior to my birth and began looking at the clubs and sports pages. The plan was to take down every name and try to find out information about each person. Luckily, that much effort wasn't needed. As I thumbed through the very last yearbook in the pile, I confronted what appeared to be a mirror image of myself on the wrestling team. It was my biological father. Sometimes you just know. From there, my parents were just a Facebook message away. I messaged him. He messaged my biological mother. They weren't together, and it's my understanding my birth was likely the reason for that. But they both went on to have their own marriages and families. And that's when I learned I was the oldest of six children from six different parents, including my adopted family. My biological father had two daughters, and my biological mother had two sons. The youngest of those two sons, my brother John Charles, or JC, is my guest on this episode. He's bold, witty, a talented musician, and genuinely fun to be around. That's why I asked him to discuss the idea of brotherhood, not only in the tale of the Phantom Cab, but also in our own lives. I'm kind of one of those firm believers that, you know, just because you're family with someone, like, doesn't mean you have to necessarily, like, be family with them. Right. And it's just funny to think that, like, even though we're only connected by blood, like, even in that very first moment we met, it was just instantly, like, never met this man before in my life. Yeah. But, like, yeah, this is my brother. Like, I can actually kind of see it. Like, I, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, there's never been a moment of doubt that, like, if you were there, like, it would, like, I don't think anything would have been different, you know? Like, yeah. And that, that's what I think is kind of cool about it all, how things play out. And uh, how things grow and change. Yeah, definitely. And, I, and I've always told people that, too, that, you know, first of all, both families were incredibly open and, and very warm and welcoming. But also, yeah, you just there, there was this immediate feeling of family that it's very, very hard to articulate and explain is that you could meet these complete strangers and suddenly they are your brothers and they feel like your brothers. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's and, amazing. Yeah, it certainly was a life-changing moment, or just the overall experience was. I met John Charles and his brother DJ for the first time around 2010. 
John Charles was 12 years old. DJ was 15, about 12 years younger than me at the time. And as John Charles just mentioned, there was an immediate familial bond. We talked about our lives, video games, I introduced them to The Walking Dead, and we genuinely felt like family. They lived about 13 hours away, so I got to meet and hang out with my brothers exactly one time before DJ was diagnosed with glioblastoma, an aggressive brain tumor that was rare for someone his age. DJ was incredibly smart and had a natural passion for music. Halfway through kindergarten, he advanced to second grade and began taking piano lessons at a young age. According to his mom, at age five, DJ's music teacher said DJ was the only young child he had ever met with perfect pitch. Even after he stopped taking piano lessons, DJ continued to learn songs by ear and eventually taught himself to play guitar. He also had a huge heart and was inclined to defend the underdog in any situation. His mom recently told me that while they were once at a talent show, a participant was singing a little pitchy. DJ's mom made a snarky comment about the performance, and DJ got angry. He told his mom that if she understood how hard the performer had worked and how nervous they were, then his mother would not have been so mean. On September 23, 2012, just two years after I became aware of his existence, and only two weeks before his 17th birthday, DJ passed away. In a lot of ways, it feels disingenuous to talk about DJ, since I only saw him in person twice. But I wanted to hear more from John Charles about their relationship, dealing with the loss of a brother, and how he forges ahead with his own unique talents and ambitions. DJ, when he was, he was born in 1995, and when he was 15, 16 years old, diagnosed with brain cancer, glioblastoma, lived for maybe roughly like two years after that. And uh, to just, just to directly tie it to the show immediately, uh, one thing that struck me was uh, when Kid does slip off the cliff and there's that whole little powerful scene of him bringing him back up. I think he looks at the compass, he looks at something and says some like nerdy, geeky stuff and the brother just looks at him and is like, I should have just let you fall. <laughs> and it's, it's just funny because it's like, how brothers can be like that of course it, it's never a true feeling but like like there's so many times in our childhood where it really was like that like yo like i wish you would just disappear i wish you would die blah 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 and then you know it, it happens and then you're like oh like like oh i should have been a brother like i guess that's one thing like as corny and childish as the show is like situations like that are real i guess in the sense of like like getting lost in the woods, but like real moments of trying and like getting o overcoming obstacles and you know adversity and whatnot. But uh, like I said, it's funny because we still have those same exact moments where it's like we're literally lost in the woods. Although these woods are like like no more than a couple acres, not some apparently national state park that these kids are lost in, where there's rangers traveling and stuff. Our dynamic was a bit different. It wasn't like a, oh, big, bravo, tough, bravado, tough guy, big brother, and the little geeky, scared little brother. I was probably way more the instigator and the, <laughs> the aggressor in most situations and uh, calculating behind the scenes and watching as the disasters would unfold. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, just kind of those initial moments of, what that was like hearing that this kid that you grew up with who 
was just a kid. Of course, you were just a kid too. You're younger than DJ, obviously. Yeah, yeah, three years younger. You know, what's that like processing all of that? Processing it initially, outside of the actual fact of like, yeah, like my brother just got diagnosed with cancer. Like it really was a gut punch because we really did have that fighting, like always bickering, never getting along like dynamic for most of our lives and it was really up until like a year before he was diagnosed when we had recently moved that like there's always that difference when you know he went through puberty first and I'm still a little kid so you know our problems aren't the same and then I start to slowly like come into that and then there's a lot more like relation and connection going on it just, it was like literally like a year after actually like bonding for once like bonding for more of a year than actually like fighting and stuff that it was just like like damn like now what like you know yeah but like you know still staying strong throughout it all like you know we always had hope for the best while still like you know you got to prepare for reality but we always hope for the best no matter what and even even when like he was at like like his worst like it was still like that brotherly feeling never changed. Like I could still sit down and play Xbox with him. And like, you know, like it, what was going on didn't matter. Like it was, you know, just in that moment right there. I think when we had finally met, DJ was diagnosed like eight months to a year later. It was all very, very quickly after we had met. I I had made a couple trips up there in that time to see you guys, you know, and there was one day when I had went up there and, your mom and your dad were both working and you were probably at school and DJ was was getting pretty weak at this point. You know, he was okay to probably be there by himself, but could have used a little help. And so yeah. that day I was, you know, he was really wanting to restring his guitars and I got to help him with that. You know, I got to make him lunch and everything like that. And even though like that was probably the most that he and I had really ever spent time together, just one on one. It was really, really an amazing, you know, experience to be able to be there for him in that way. Yeah, and like, you know, it 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 was really a learning experience all throughout. Uh, you know, being so young at the time, like when it when it initially happened, it was just like, you know, of course it feels like like a punishment type of thing. Like, you know, what what did I do to deserve this? Why do things like this happen? But then you realize, you know, it's just one of those things, and it's crazy how much I've grew from just that one experience itself and how many things like stemmed and branched off from that and like you know like meeting you and uh overall life decisions that were made that just led like slowly after another into another thing like to shape me and it's it's funny because uh I remember I making like a distinction in my life like around maybe like 10th or 11th grade when uh I decided like I didn't want to live as like a you know who who's John Charles like oh that that's that sad boy like you know his brother died like you know like as sad as it was to me and how much it hurt me like I couldn't let that define my life and I knew like like you know if he was still alive I'd have to keep on living my life like for myself and so like just because he's like not here anymore like I can still do things in his honor but still like doing my thing and like following my path yeah the hardest thing though was probably like I did a lot of, uh, like, you know, like, little brother, like, copying stuff. So it was, like, finding a whole new world for myself without having that, like, him, like, you know, him as a, like, beta tester. Like, you know, like, <laughs> if he likes the music, like, it must be good music. If he likes 
playing guitar and piano like you know like that stuff must be cool and just like figuring that kind of stuff out on my own i i guess one one thing that is interesting you know is that you both did kind of have that common passion for for music well that that was also one of the other gut punches too was uh like because we had started bonding we started like realizing what each other's interests were not that it wasn't like extremely obvious and upfront to begin with but uh while he he was more you know like like he played piano he played guitar like he was like i mean an instrumentalist i guess is the best way to put it he didn't really try to write songs he was more interested in in playing them and uh me personally i was always like i was always into writing and very percussive like like you know when he got a guitar for christmas i got a drum set and so it it took a while for those things to meet but eventually there was a very brief moment where it was like yo like you do this i do this like we can we could do this and then you know like he got diagnosed and things happened how they happened and that's that really was one of the like main driving forces to actually keep doing what I was doing with like my music and my writing and all that is just like I couldn't just let it die out with him and I had to just keep it going some way although I would never consider myself nearly as musically inclined as he is though well I I think honestly and this isn't just me saying it because I'm I'm family I I've been very jealous of both of your talents I, I think both of you have great great talent but just very different you put it very well that, you know, his was maybe more melodic and yours is more percussive. Yeah, two different schools. <laughs> right, exactly. Which which I think also speaks to, you know, just kind of the brotherhood mindset is that the ways you're similar can still be very different. I think I think that's just a, a natural attribute of, of being a brother, you know? Yeah. you had in the the years past put out some music and some some albums are you still is that something you're still actively doing well actually funnily enough i i recently started school for graphic design just to add to my value as an artist oh wow but, um, i am still making music um but i've been kind of pushing away from my general style of like rapping and whatnot i've been trying to move towards a different sound a different sound with my production to not not to completely change direction on the conversation but it, it's it's a lot of personal things and a lot also a lot of I don't like the state of hip-hop music right now mm-hmm. and the music that uh like you can cut this entire part like I, I'm not trying to make it an agenda but just the music that black people listen to in general I feel like is bringing us down so uh I feel like if I'm making music, I want to make sure I'm making the right music. That's if, you know, even if five people listen to it, like put those five people in the right direction, you know? Yeah. So uh, that is, it's kind of like a rebranding going on right now. Sure. And and I think maybe at this point, based on that critique, <laughs> it, it's probably important to point out that you are black. I'm, I'm. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> I, I just don't want, I just don't want people to assume this is two white guys criticizing black music. <laughs> Because obviously I don't I don't have a take on that whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, right now I'm uh focusing on design and uh just trying to get a little foothold in that because I'm currently working a fast food job. So obviously I do not want that to be my career. Right. So I started thinking hmm, maybe I should start doing things that I can do to make better money and be more happy with my work. Because who wants to like do music for work, right? <laughs> I know that 
it's always really terrible when there's something that you love doing as a hobby and then at some point you can transition into it becoming job-like and and suddenly it's just not quite as fun as as maybe it was when i was 10 years old i seriously wanted to be kanye west when i grew up (laughs) and now that i'm grown up and see what kanye west is like i'm really having like a early life crisis so yeah Scramble Transmissions is written and hosted by Adam Timish, with additional production support from Blake Walker and Ox Audio. Very special thanks to our guest JC for watching and discussing the episode, as well as talking about his own experience. And of course, thank you for listening. If you like the podcast and the episode, please take a moment to rate and review it so it can be shared with others. As always, until next time, watch something weird.